Hello and welcome to this month's Atoms Conversation. It's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief here with Rachel Egbeko. Hello, I'm a paediatric intensivist and Senior Editor of Archives of Disease in Childhood. We've got a lot to get through, some really interesting stuff. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Rachel to get things going. I'm going to start on a slightly different note, Nick. Um, uh, referring to a, a different podcast, uh, one by Krista Tippett. Uh, she hosts the On Being Project. Well, what struck me this time round was that she was interviewing a chap called Trabian Shorters, and they talked about how we can perpetuate the very things we're trying to address by deficit framing, and they introduced the notion of asset framing, and I thought that might be an interesting way to look at the papers uh, that are in the current issue. This issue features uh, children uh, who are contending with uh, a myriad of issues, uh, including uh, cancer infection. Uh, there's children from Lebanon, the US, Grenada, UK, and also Siberia um, uh, for a, a retrospective. So we won't go through all the papers, but uh, a few of them stood out for us. I think what's fair to say is that all these children will have their aspirations, um, their potential, uh, and uh, our job is to support them uh, as best we can. So if we ask, will I there and their families control? So that will be in the context, I suppose, of autonomy um, uh, and how we can help them achieve whatever it is that they're able to. Extrapolating from that, I think we should start with a paper from the US. Um, it's called, uh, and it's a no-holds-barred title, it's called The Lethality of Racism for Black Children in the US, a Primer. And in a nutshell, it describes how racism kills. Um, the authors uh, are based in the US, Heather Burris, a neonatologist, Eugenia South, an emergency physician both based in Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania and Max Jordan in Ginnemany, Tiako at Yale and currently in Boston for his residency rotation. So the paper in short describes how racism underlies increased mortality in, in the black population. They also describe the exposure to this toxic environment and give examples of how this play out as well as highlighting policies that might if not mitigate, attenuate against the lethality of racism. So what struck you on reading this paper that was unsettling? Well, it's unsettling on almost every level because um, I suppose fundamentally it mirrors society and the failures of society. It gives us a feel for how racism looks at structural level, at the effects. It looks at the latent, well-hidden, but clear stresses uh, inherent to racism, segregation, stress, pollution, and then, of course, the corrosive psychological effects of chronic discrimination, which accumulate with time. I don't want to spoil too much by, by, by talking, by expanding anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a short, but very punchy piece, which will leave Readers very moved, I think. I would rate this as essential reading. 
on thinking about this this paper, and and it's a topic that I've thought about a fair amount, in part, full disclosure, uh, because I'm of mixed heritage. So I might have been on the receiving end of some of this that has been uh, described in the paper. So I can relate to that on a on a different level from lived experience. And it's extraordinarily helpful to, to see a paper that addresses lethality. Now, so I survived. Um, uh, there are children who haven't, uh, and there are children who are hampered in their ability to be what it is that they might have been. Uh, and I think this paper clearly states what an unacceptable situation this is, what we might be able to do about it, um, uh, and rallies us, really. Um, uh, I think the authors have done an extraordinary work in in a very concise way, uh, stating what the problem is and what we can do. Uh, and as you say, Nick, racism kills. Mm. So we do have choices um, as a society uh, uh, in what we think is important and uh, legislation and and policies have a role to play, and we see that in the next paper where there have been successes. We do. There's um, the next paper is about lead and toxicity, um, and it's not all bad news. The background is that this is a very neat study uh, from Lebanon, which compares current levels of lead serum lead in children living in high-risk areas, comparing them with 20 years ago, which was before the lead-free petrol legislation was introduced. And that was clearly a major step. So the paper, in short, is by um, El Zaran and, and, and co-authors, and the study was based in, in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. And children were recruited um, and tested for blood level uh, at three hospital sites. So the, the, the good news, as I said, is that levels are substantially lower than the um, changes in fuel law in 2002. I thought this was good because it, it shows that legislation can make a difference. This is a completely avoidable risk to neurological development. And um, we've known about this for more than decades, more than generations, centuries perhaps. And many of us will have been inducted through grainy old textbooks showing uh, blood films and bone x-rays of children who are chronically exposed. It's been around a long time. But this, 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 is, a, this is a positive in that things are clearly going in the right direction. The step that leaves remains incomplete is the removal again of disparities. So we're still finding that children whose houses haven't been painted for several years, in other words, are still exposed to old lead paints, amongst others, are still at higher risk. Again, this is totally avoidable, and that this is the the exposure of children uh, to to lead. Uh, there's there's been good strides made in sort of taking lead out of. Uh, petrol and diesel, uh, 
and and nowadays uh, one would think, oh, you know, that's the normal, that's the status quo. The issue is that there's still other areas where uh, lead's not required, um, and paint is one of those. And the WHO and UN um, are trying very hard to also get lead uh, removed from uh, from paint, just like with gasoline. Uh, and and that is uh, taking a bit longer, uh, but we see that uh, it's absolutely doable. So say in uh, Sub-Saharan uh, Africa or in in Africa, uh, the early two thousands there was um, lead everywhere uh, in uh, in petrol, and now there isn't. Uh, and that is uh, in just a few years uh, being able to do that. So I really don't see why we shouldn't be able to do that as well for uh, for paint. It's very extraordinary that that, that paint will <laughs> influence someone's yes. neural development. Um, uh, for no good reason at all. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes that point very well. So in terms of neurodevelopment, that, you know, that's a major thing in, in paediatrics. So we're trying to create an environment where children are uh, well-equipped and as best as equipped as they can be to lead their lives with their families. Uh, and it's not just the environment in terms of what we've done with the environment, um, such as we've just discussed that uh, within our environment there's uh, infectious diseases. Uh, uh, one of the infectious diseases that is discussed in this uh, edition uh, is Zika. Zika, a mosquito-borne virus, um, not such a big deal for adults. Uh, there might be some fever, some rash. However, uh, in pregnancy, uh, it, it may well influence um, the, uh, the, uh, the baby. Uh, and their outcome. So in this edition, we uh, we see a paper from uh, Granada uh, by Dr. Carol Blackman uh, and, uh, and co-authors, and they describe a cohort of uh, children, about 130 and a half of those had been exposed to Zika uh, in utero, and the other hadn't. My first reaction was a relatively positive one because um, I think as a result of the attention Zika received, particularly at the height of the of the epidemic, um, it, it felt as if any um, antenatal infection was going to have a bad outcome. But this re- refines that with with granular data and it and and it shows that in children's uh, provided the brain carries on growing reflected of course in the head circumference at birth then at least cognitively the outcomes are reasonably good um, from this study at least and uh, there's no there's no reason i can think of that this wouldn't be generalizable there is a rider, of course, and that's the the, the visual acuity. Um, we don't have that much detail on this. I'd like I'd like to know more, and I'd like to know the extent to which this would be clinically important. In other words, from a fine motor, uh, playing sport point of view, and reading and writing point of view, or whether they're they're, they're very subtle changes um, because that of course will have implications for screening 
um, and intervention should the differences between the two groups be um, be large enough to warrant that. So interesting, but at some level reasonably reassuring. Mm. What I liked about this paper is that they show that uh, initially, if you just used head circumference, you don't need to rely on too many additional uh, modalities uh, to um, uh, to see uh, whether there is uh, a risk for uh, a neurodevelopmental problem. So there could be uh, reassurance in that. I mean, obviously, mm. when the children are microcephalic, that's a totally different situation. Yeah. There is, of course, the risk that one becomes complacent. So, as you say, just having the normal head circumference doesn't mean to say it's all good. Uh, and as we as we know, uh, the visual system is extraordinarily important. Um, so, both in terms of contrast sensitivity um, and the and acuity, which the which the authors have uh, have uh, have addressed in uh, in follow up, and there may well be. Uh, 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 a trigger to sort of say mm, we need to follow these these children up a bit longer. How do they do at school? Um, um, because uh, even though their head circumference might be all right, uh, there is still uh, a risk to their ability to uh, to thrive school and sports and and however. So there's more work to be done in long term follow ups. I'd say. Yeah, I agree. But there's a there's a a, a glimmer here of if not light then some degree of optimism um yes let's stay with assets <laughs> let's stay with assets that could be our moral of today's discussion um so I, I i don't think i'm making a quantum leap in um introducing the next the next paper because again this is likely to have policy implications and um and is also i think largely amenable to intervention so we, we have a paper um, from uh, a, a group of oncologists in Leeds, Hannah Newton and colleagues, um, who have looked at the provision of fertility preservation throughout the UK. Um, a neat study where uh, tertiary paediatric oncology centres were approached for their approach um, to fertility preservation in children who um, were about to start their cancer therapy, whether radio or ke chemotherapy or otherwise. It's uh, absolutely delightful that we can think about uh, fertility uh, in children being treated for cancer, suggesting that they will read, uh, reach adulthood um, and with adulthood might wish to procreate um, and making uh, making that happen from either uh, sperm, ovarian, uh, and uh, oversight uh, preservation. The flip side there is there might be uh, the capacity to do that, but how do we do that in an equitable way? And, and this is where funding comes in. So uh, there isn't a uniform uh, distribution uh, of the ability to preserve in the country, that's a bit disturbing, really. So charities might uh, might be called upon. Uh, it's not necessarily NHS provided. Uh, there's a difference again between um, males and females, where 
the NHS will provide uh, for the possibility of uh, future children uh, in this cohort for boys, but for girls it's slightly different. There's a higher reliance on charity funding there, uh, and it's patchy across the uh, uh, the nation. Now that may be because of different techniques. Preserving sperm is uh, is uh, is a technique that's fairly simple and long-standing, and that may be different uh, for oocytes um, uh, and ovarian tissue. But something to bear in mind. Again, come back to policies. Uh, and laws uh, and what we find is important um, and what we should see as equitable access. Yes, as we said with, with some of the other papers, there, there are discrepancies that take you by surprise here. Mm. Do you know, we could carry this uh, discussion on pretty much all day, I think, but um, but time, time is finite and... Uh, um, so I'd like to discuss several other papers. I think we're going to have to leave it to readers to read on the site or in the print copies and um, generate the, their own discussions. Um, everything, of course, is out there on adc.bmj.com. And um, I hope you all enjoy the issue and this discussion um, as, as much as we have. I think uh, we'd leave it to the, to the readers and listeners to contribute to the dialogue now and further down the line. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening. It's been a pleasure as always. Bye for now. Bye from me. Thank you.